You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Again, we begin today by considering who we are. Who we are is grace. And more broadly, who we are as the church. Now, some of you are new. Some of you have got a couple years under your belt. But if you don't know, Grace has been around. This community has been around for more than 50 years. And I don't need to tell you, a lot has changed in 50 years. Things always do. If you think beyond just this local community called Grace to the wider church, the wider church has been going strong for over two millennia. And I guarantee you, even more has changed in 2,000 years for the church. In fact, some have noticed that the biggest and most sweeping changes in the church tend to come every 500 years. It's not to say that change doesn't happen all the time, but like the most biggest and sweeping changes tend to come every 500 years. The Lutheran Church, that's what we are. We're Grace Lutheran Church, among other churches like us that came out of the Protestant Reformation, is a result of the last big one. The last Great Reformation, it's called, which, interestingly, if you know your timeline, was 500 years ago. So if you're doing the math right now, seemingly, we are at, right at the point of another Great Reformation, if that tra- tendency is true. And I think that's exactly what's going on. I think that we are in the midst of another Reformation of the church, and I think the signs of this next Reformation are everywhere. There's so much I could talk about right now, but I just want you to consider just a couple of observations that... Uh, help us to see these shifts, the shift that's taking place in the church. So just three things really quickly. First, looking from the outside, meaning not from our perspective, but from the world inside to the church, a shift that's taking place, and this is an objective observation. There's no, we're not trying to you know, comment positive or negative, just observing. From the outside, the church is no longer the center of society and culture particularly in the West. Many of you may have grown up at a time when the church was. The church, you know, you went into a neighborhood and the question that someone would ask you is, what church you go to? And that wouldn't be a weird question. It would be, oh, I go to this church or I go to that church or the church would be sort of the hub in the neighborhood. We live at a time where, and this has been going on for a bit, the church is no longer at the center of society and culture, particularly in the West. There are a variety of reasons for this. But the fact remains, the church is no longer the central point of where people connect socially. And again, for some of you, that may be when you grew up where your parents met their friends or where you met your friends. It was all about the church was your social network. That is no longer the case. People are no longer connecting socially primarily through the church. Some, that may be a part of it, but for others, it's not even a part of it. They find and build relationships in their neighborhood in other places. And added to this, there was a time when the church was the place where it was the center of where our morality came from, meaning where you learned and studied your beliefs, your values, and your standards of behavior. And again, many of you, that's why your parents brought you to church. That was the operating assumption. Maybe you brought your kids. But the reality is more and more people are deciding their morality, discerning their morality, learning and studying what they believe, what they value, and what their standards or behavior are outside of the church. So that's one observation. Second, within the church, even if we look within the community of the church, 
There, and I don't know if you're conscious of this, if you're aware, but and this has been brewing too, there's increased division and debate within the church over what it means to be a Christian. Lots of dif- d- 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 division about, well, what does it actually mean to be a Christian? And once again, a lot of division and, mis- and understanding, difference in understanding about how to understand and apply the Bible in our lives. And this seems to be a repeated thing that comes up when the church is being reformed. These variances in opinion as to what it means to be a Christian and how to read and apply the Bible to our lives these days tend to be defined more by politics than theology. And again, this is just an objective. This is not a commentary. It's just this is what you see. It tends to be more about politics than theology. Voting issues are the dividing line rather than matters of biblical doctrine. Go 500 years before the Protestant Reformation I talked about was about biblical doctrine. That was the division where now it's politics. How do you vote? How should you vote? And what does that say whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or how you read your Bible or you don't read your Bible? And it's, again, over politics that Christians are separating from each other, not theology necessarily. That's two. Third, even the very nature, if you think about it, even the very nature of how we and why we gather as the church is up for grabs these days. You see a lot of open seats around you. There was a time, not just this church, but this isn't just exclusive to this church where this wasn't the case. Where Sunday, if it was Sunday, everybody, if you were a person who was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you went to church. That's no longer uh, an assumption that we should make. That is, that's, that's not a reality that's happening. The very nature of how we want and why we gather as a church is up for grabs. What you may not notice is worship is becoming more and more individualistic rather than corporate. People don't join a church anymore. For again, you or maybe your parents, you came to town and you joined a church. You looked, you were raised Lutheran, you looked for the Lutheran church. You were Catholic, you looked for the Catholic church. People don't join a church anymore. You know this. We shop for a church. We shop for one. And churches, as a result, over the last couple of decades, try harder and harder to attract members, even as many are now even beginning to ask, well, why gather? Why be a part of a local church at all? Why do I even need to be a part of the church? And just take it baseline to this, what we're doing right now. You ask many people, well, why do you, why do you gather on Sunday? Well, why do you, what is that, what's Sunday about? And many people will go, I don't know. You just do. You just do. Well, you know, we go to church and that's the time when we hear the word of God. We get a biblical message and we sing praise songs together to the Lord and we pray and we're together. And that's what we do on Sunday. Okay, well, more and more in the Christian world, and I'm talking about Christians, not people who don't believe, if Sunday's just about a message, some singing, and some prayers, and I'm really busy, and Sunday's the only day that I get off, Sunday's the only day that we have together as a family, well, if that's what Sunday is, I can just subscribe to a sermon podcast. I can just create a a worship playlist on Spotify that probably sounds better than what's going to, I'm going to hear in church. No disrespect to the praise team. <laughs> if it's all about prayer, I can get a prayer app or I can get something that's going to help me to pray. If that's, I, mean, I can get all that, take care of that for myself. And I can do these things at a time and in a place that suits my schedule. Many people who aren't here or anywhere else, you watch, come across and say, oh, I'm a Christian. What church do you go to? I don't, I don't have, I'm not church. I don't go to church. I'm a Christian. I do church on my own. 
These changes, and again, there's so many more I could point to, these changes and their ripple effect as we experience them locally as grace, and we're not the only, this is not just about us, this is about the church as a whole, many of these can be unexpected to us. Some of them you may not even been aware of, and you're like, your mind's like, oh my gosh, you're like suddenly seeing this. For some of us, you may be aware of it, it may be really disconcerting for you. The reality is we can't deny them. We shouldn't avoid them, and we definitely have to respond to them. And in order to do that in a healthy manner, we need to remember what does not change. And what does not change is our identity and purpose as the church. In order to respond effectively and positively, we need to stop and reflect on what it means to be the church. And we need to not be afraid to ask questions like, why do we exist? Why do we exist as grace? Having more than 50 years of history behind us and looking forward to the future, what in the midst of all that really matters? And when all is said and done, whenever that is, when all is said and done for us is grace, what endures in all that time that we've been given? What, what lasts? So those are the questions we're going to answer this morning. And to answer those questions, we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation between the Apostle Paul and a dynamic church in Corinth. This community, if you're not familiar with the Corinthians, like ours, like the church at large, needed some direction. Now, I want you to listen carefully as we're going to be joining this letter already in progress. And if you pay attention, it won't take you long to pick up on some apparent tension between Paul and this community. So you've got it open by now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Hear what Paul writes. He writes, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it is God who gives the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building, by the grace God gave me, has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though as only one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The specific elephant in the room 
has to do with divisions in the Corinthian church. The Greek word that Paul uses here for divisions is the word schismata, which is where we get our English word schism from. But schismata doesn't have really to do with factions or parties. And when we use that word schism, we think that way in terms of factions or parties. More precisely, schismata means a tear, as in a fabric, or I think like a run in a stocking. It appears there has been a tear in the fabric of the community in Corinth. Paul, as we heard, admonishes them to overcome their differences and to be united. The Greek word translated as united means literally to be knit together. Interestingly, it's the same word that is found in Mark's gospel when Mark is describing the mending of fishing nets. So Paul is offering this vivid image that often gets lost in translation. It's the image of the church as a torn fabric that needs to be mended. Specifically, the Corinthians are tearing themselves apart from each other due to various favorites as to their leaders. Some have stated their preference for Apollos, a teacher who came after Paul in Corinth. Others have declared their allegiance to Peter. According to Paul, playing favorites has gotten so bad in Corinth, some Corinthians have actually developed a magical understanding of their baptism, such that they have come to believe the one performing their baptism bestows more or less power depending on who it is. It's like someone saying, I was baptized by Pastor John and not by Pastor Chris, so my baptism is better (laughs) or worse. (laughs) To add insult to injury, some Corinthians are taking it even further than that, stating even more absurdly that somehow by baptism, I belong to Apollos. No, I belong to Peter. And it's for this reason earlier in the letter, we didn't read this part, this is in chapter one, right at the start of the letter, Paul starts sarcastically and says, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Have we ever known people who join a minister rather than a congregation? It happens. Many people, perhaps all of us at some level, come to church to be taken care of, to be told what to do, how to live and follow Jesus. And so we look for the right leader, the pastor who fits the bill, who has what we're looking for. People will say they're joining the church, but often they've actually joined the minister. We join the minister because the minister is a spellbinding preacher, a nurturing pastor, the kind of recruiter, organizer, and an entrepreneur who gets things done. One might argue Paul had the right to argue for a little credit. I mean, after all, wasn't Paul the founding pastor in Corinth? But Paul never wavers in the midst of this popularity contest in asserting it was about him. It was about the power of his personality, the influence of his education and training. It was about the strength of his talent and skill. No, Paul insists. I planted. Apollos watered, Paul continues, but then adds... But it is God who gives the growth. For we are co-workers in God's service. My friends, the truth is, the disunity of the Corinthian church is more the symptom of the problem rather than the problem itself. The actual problem, if we listen carefully, is their false understanding of what the church, of what the ministry is. 
Now, to appreciate what the church is, we need to answer the question of what is a minister. What's a minister? We don't tend to use that word. We use pastor. But the word minister, what's a minister? Simply put, a minister is one who acts on behalf of another. One who acts on behalf of another. When we see this sort of usage of the word minister on the, uh, let's say, the stage of European politics, right? Where governments have a foreign minister or a minister of finance, for example. Such ministers represent and speak on behalf of their governments. Their authority derives from those they represent. It is not their own. In much the same way, ministers represent Christ. Paul says, I am, we are only servants assigned by the Lord to the task of being bearers of the message through whom others come to believe in Jesus, like you, Corinth. Don't mistake the messenger for the message. Don't confuse the witness with the one to whom the witness can only point. In other words, the church, the ministry, all of it is intended to represent, to speak for and reflect the character and the will of Christ to others. Any church, including grace, all ministries of the church, including ours, do not exist to sustain themselves. The ministry of the church was not created by the spirit of the living Christ for itself, for the benefit of its membership. Grace exists not for the sake of grace. It doesn't even exist for the sake of the church, the wider church. We exist for the sake of those who are not here yet. We exist not to keep grace going, but to keep the grace of God flowing into the places and relationships where it is needed the most. This work done on behalf of Jesus is a shared ministry. I hope you caught that. For we are co-workers in God's service, Paul clarifies. Hear this, please. Representing, speaking on behalf of, serving in the name of Jesus is not just the responsibility of ordained pastors, but all of us as the priesthood of all believers. Back 500 years, that great reformation, the Protestant reformation, this is one of the big rallying cries, is it's about the priesthood of all believers. We're all ministers together. Being the church, doing the work of ministry isn't just my job or Pastor John's. It's a call we obey, an act of service we carry out together in following Christ. Hear that to start. It's about togetherness. Together, together we engage our neighbor as one forgiven sinner to another. Together we share this glorious, life-transforming, world-changing gospel of God the Father for us to the point of becoming flesh in Jesus Christ. This gospel of God with us through the giving of his Son and the giving of his Holy Spirit. Together, we reflect not just in what we say, but in what we do, but in how we live, that what we need, what saves us, the only way we can become all we were ever meant to be is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Together, we repeatedly point not to ourselves, getting caught up in who prefers who or who favors what, But instead, together we point to Jesus, together being preoccupied that all would know Christ crucified, that each person would receive the hope of the glory of Christ risen. That sounds great. But let's be honest. This ministry, 
of sharing the gospel, of being witnesses to Christ, of pointing to the kingdom come, can be very frustrating in human terms. Very frustrating. Because it doesn't usually manifest itself in immediate results. And if we really step back and think about it, its results, when they do manifest themselves, don't really fit into our conventional metrics of success. I mean, the way Jesus describes the gospel and the kingdom, it often appears and gives rise among people and in places we least expect. The manner in which Paul writes about the work of the gospel and the kingdom is against the backdrop of being in a prison cell after being kicked out of synagogues and even whole cities. And of course, the very means by which Christ accomplishes our salvation, the baseline of this gospel and this kingdom, Christ stricken, smitten, and afflicted, stretched out on a cross, looks like foolishness to the world, not some cosmic victory. And in the midst of all that, the wisdom of this age demands results, even in the church. And so we, together, who do the work of ministry, we, together, who like to be in control, tell ourselves what matters is the size of our attendance, what matters is the size of our budgets, what matters is how much we have to offer in terms of programs and events, what matters is how many new members we have or baptisms that take place. And so we convince ourselves it's our job to grow the church, to increase the membership, to raise the level of stewardship, to expand the reach and scope of the ministry, or if we still think that the work of ministry is ultimately up to the pastor, we place all those expectations on him or her. Please don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. We as ministers together ought to strive for quality and seek excellence in what we deliver. We should offer our best in terms of what we bring, in terms of our call to serve Christ but ministry, Paul teaches the Corinthians and us along with them, is process-oriented, not results-oriented. There's a reason he describes it more like gardening rather than running a nonprofit. Paul says it's a matter of planting. It's a matter of watering. It's a matter of yielding. Yes, we cast the seed of the gospel. Yes, we till the soil of the lives that the Lord puts in front of us. Yes, we plant and we water both the seed and the soil. But Paul makes it clear it is God who gives the growth. In other words, together as faithful ministers, as the church, this work doesn't belong to us. And it isn't about us. We who represent another always point beyond ourselves to the gospel and the kingdom incarnated into an everlasting reality in Jesus Christ. This is what matters. When we ask what matters, this is what matters. The gospel, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. What matters is not worrying or fixating on giving people what they want or even what they seek. What matters is trusting the message of the gospel to be enough. The forgiveness of sins through the cross, the promise of new, transformed, and abundant life that begins now and lasts into eternity because of the resurrection. The empowerment and guidance of the Holy Spirit to lead us all into that present future. 
thanks to the gift of Pentecost. What matters is trusting the message of the gospel to be enough to give people what they need, even if it's not what they're looking for. What matters is trusting not the strength of our plans. What matters is trusting the power of the cross made perfect in our weakness, that God can use whatever we do for his purposes and in his timing. What matters is having the courage, even when things don't quite come together the way we've planned, or even when things fall apart, what matters is to look together to the assurance of the resurrection brought to light as God raises up from the ashes of our broken dreams his certain plans for us, working all things together for our good. What matters is not the burden of our expectations but the girth and authority of the Holy Spirit coming and filling our hearts, giving us vision and direction, all that we need to carry on, to press forward, to not grow weary or lose hope. This is what matters. But when all is said and done, for us as the church, as grace, when all is said and done in terms of ministry, what endures? Paul tells us that too. What lasts, Paul writes, is what can withstand the refiner's fire of the Lord's judgment. At the end that is our beginning, Paul describes Jesus coming back like a building inspector who tests our worksmanship by lighting it up. On that day, our genuine motivations Our honest effort, the fruit of our lives as followers of Jesus, will be revealed for what it is, by fire. And this fire that Paul alludes to, as he says, will not threaten anyone's salvation. What's described is an evaluative fire, not a punitive one. This consuming fire, the way I like to think of it, it's the consuming fire that that is, in the end, part of the Lord's promise to make all things new. In other words, such heat seeks to test what can bear the weight of eternity. What can bear the weight of eternity and what can? Only this, Paul asserts, only this, that which is built on the foundation which has already been laid, that of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means the only thing that endures, the only thing that lasts for eternity is that which comes out of following the one who gives the growth. Jesus. What endures forever is what we go and do likewise in the power of the Spirit and out of the truth that is Christ. Again, to boil this down to be really elemental, what is everlasting are the relationships. What is everlasting are the relationships. I said this last week, if you did not listen to my sermon, and if you weren't here, I totally get it, but you got to go back and listen to my sermon on the word neighbor, because it, it sets the stage for everything else you're going to hear. This, it's like a filter by which you'll understand everything else that's going to be presented to you, because what is everlasting, not just Paul, but elsewhere, are the relationships. I'll just give you a sneak preview of last week again. Loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is what matters. But we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Expressing that, we express that through how we relate, how we love others. That's what lasts. Our love for God that is expressed through our love for others. 
God in Christ, hear this, came down not for Israel alone. God in Christ came down not for the church. God in Christ came down for all the world. What endures is the way of discipleship, of following Jesus by living like Jesus, by embodying the truth of his life, his death, and his resurrection in every relationship in our lives, not just here within this community, but out there in the neighborhood, on the streets where we live, at the places where we work, and in the spaces where we play. What lasts is the life of the kingdom, sharing the unmerited forgiveness and unconditional grace, extending the sacrificial generosity and abundant graciousness, promoting the deep and abiding peace we have been given in Christ with all persons, anyone and everyone, whether or not they join us on a Sunday or become a member of our community. What makes it through the refining fire and bears the weight of eternity is what carries beyond an hour on a Sunday, beyond the confines of some building, some property localized beyond an address. What makes it through the refining fire and bears the weight of eternity is what takes us beyond our comfort zones, beyond our circles of interest, and into the lives of those who do not know, who have not heard, who are longing to see, to believe, to understand that no matter what their skin color, no matter what their nationality, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their gender, no matter what their generation, no matter what their sexual orientation or creed, they are a child of God. So beloved to him that they were worth dying for by his son. So treasured, so cherished, so desired by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, they are not beyond the reach of his redemption. They are not beyond the promise of his restoration. They are not beyond the assurance of his resurrection. My friends, if you haven't been with me, if, you're, if I'm losing you, what is the church? The shared ministry of representing Christ, not just to each other, but to the world. What matters? It's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about him, the one who brings the growth as we share the gospel and reflect the kingdom through everything we say and do. What endures? What lasts? Only that which follows Jesus. The relationships we commit to and invest in through the power of the Spirit by being Christ to each other. And that leads me right here to this missional narrative. So you've got two parts here, the why and the who. The why is for next week. Welcome to read it, but all this is about the who. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to explain to you why it's here. The who is the statement of our DNA and our identity. This is intended to encapsulate grace at its best over 50 years plus. Grace at its best, and it's also aspirational. Who we, can, who we will be in the future at our best. And it reads, Grace Lutheran Church is a vibrant, multi-generational community of faith for over 50 years. While we honor this heritage that anchors our community, we are not confined by it. The people in our community come from a variety of personal and family backgrounds, political opinions, and cultural experiences. 
What unites us is our mutual need for the grace and peace we find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We worship Christ by continuing to grow out of our identity in him through study together and service to others. We share life together by compassionately bridging generational, economic, and social differences in our community, in our nation, and in our world. So what is this? This is the barometer for our who. This is how we evaluate. This was written so we can say, how do we evaluate if we're measuring up to this definition that I've just given you of what the church is, of what matters and what endures? And so when we ask ourselves, when we're kind of saying, you know, who are we? Are we, are we living up to who we're, who we're called to be, who we're defined to be as the church, as grace? We look and we stop and we say, we, want to, we will be measuring up. We'll be living into that definition if we celebrate our heritage. You can't deny where you come from. We're Lutheran. Some of you, that means a lot. Some of you could care less. But it's who we are. You can't rewrite history. We're Lutheran. We got more than 50 years. We were planted here in Huntington Beach. We're an Orange County church. Lutheran, 50 years. A lot of our people, not all, came from the Midwest. We got a lot of people who like the Vikings and the Packers. And we got a lot of people who like the Angels and the Dodgers, too, while we're at it. And we're primarily, and again, it's just acknowledging it, a white church. Doesn't mean that's all we are, but we're predominantly a white church. We don't deny this. We celebrate it. We acknowledge it. But at the same time, in celebrating it, we recognize we're open to change, to being changed. Because the thing is, being transformed is how we got this far. I wasn't here, but I guarantee if I can go back, things have changed. Being changed is how we got to where we are. So we don't deny where we come from. We acknowledge it. We celebrate it. But we also realize that means we're going to continue to be changed and transformed. Added to that, we recognize our diversity. This is important. We recognize our diversity. We don't assume we're all the same. We come in and don't assume we're all the same. We're not surprised when all of a sudden, wow, you don't have the same political opinions I do. Wow, you don't have the same socioeconomic circumstance that I have. Wow, you're not in the same life stage as I am. Wow, you haven't had the same cultural experience that I have. We don't assume that we're all the same. We're not surprised that we're not. And in fact, we welcome more variety. We welcome this diversity because this diversity reflects the broad tapestry of the world to which we've been called to represent and serve Christ. If we can't be diverse in here, there ain't no way we're going to be diverse out there. What we're going to do is we're going to hide in here. And we ain't no hiding in here. We recognize and we celebrate our diversity. We're not afraid of it. We're not surprised by it. But in the midst of that, we all go, well, again, with all that diversity, there's a lot of diversity. How are, what holds us together? What unifies us? And there's only one thing. What unifies us in the midst of all that diversity is Christ alone. In the midst of all of it, it's Jesus alone. You may not vote the same way I do. You may be a Republican. You may be a Democrat. You may like the Packers. You may be from Minnesota. You may be a single person. You may be a young person. You may be an old person. You may be a married person. You may be divorced. You may be a widow. You may be white. You may be black. Whatever. The only thing that unites us, how we're held together, is Christ. What holds us together is we can look at each other in the eye in the midst of maybe not even understanding each other completely or appreciating where we each come from. And we can say, you know what holds us together? I need the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and you do too. And 
I get the grace of God thanks to the love of Christ, and so do you. That's what holds us together. And that's the only thing. We may share affinities, and but at the end of the day, what holds us together, all of us together, is Christ alone. Now, that's easy to say. We can say that. Yep, what holds us together is our need for grace and that we get grace from Christ. And that's why the statement goes on. This unity that we have in Christ alone is reflected in our pursuit and practice of following him through our study and service together. We don't get together and hang out just because we like each other. I hope we do. We don't get together and hang out because we both cheer for the same team or vote on the same issues. We get together to study because what unites us in Christ is so we're united in wanting to pursue him and know him more and better become who he is. We, what unites us is, hey, you know what? We may come from different places, but we can, be, we can serve together because we're serving like him. We're serving the way he called us to. That's how we remain unified, through studying and serving together, sharing life. We share life. We actually share it together. We show the world that you can be different, and yet you can be united. And what unites us in the midst of our differences is our need for grace and our receiving of grace. We share life in Jesus, and we don't just do it on a Sunday. We do it every day. And guys, I'm going to say this. We are really good. Room for improvement. We are really good at being diverse and unified in Christ for an hour on a Sunday. We are good at it. We can sit next to each other even though we may not agree or like each other. We can shake hands, maybe even share a donut or coffee. But the call is bigger than that. Together, we are ministers representing Christ. What matters is not all the stuff we come up with. What matters is simply sharing the seed, the message of the gospel, and pointing to the reality, the fruit of the inbreaking kingdom through the witness of our lives. What endures are not the programs or events we create, but what endures are the relationships we commit ourselves to to more than on a Sunday. The neighbors into whose lives, the soil of whose lives we are willing to plant, to water, and to till, patiently trusting God to bring the growth and recognizing all the while our growth is at stake too. The scope of this ministry is to be everlasting. Therefore, the focus of the church of grace must be wider than this community alone. Because you heard Paul say it, and it's so beautiful. Together, we are all the field. Together, we are the orchard God is reaping. Together, we are all the living temple under construction, the work in progress the Lord is building. This is who we are. And once we know that, once we agree on that, then we can say, why? Why are we? Why grace? This community here in this place for such a time as this. And this is what we will talk about going forward, but I will leave you with this. We exist because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that none should perish, but all would have life, so that all would flourish. What does it mean to flourish? We'll unpack that next week. But for now, in the meantime, let's be who we are as the church. Let's build on no other foundation than that which is Christ. Let us refuse together to look for no less of a reward than every knee bowing and every tongue confessing Jesus as Lord. This is who we are. Is this who you are as a part of grace? I pray that you say yes. Amen.